The sermon you're about to listen to is from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Welcome and good morning. I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church. It's good to be with you. I'm glad that you're here. Um, today we're beginning a four-week teaching series, which typically work, we work our way through a book of the Bible verse by verse, um, often word by word, taking months and years to get through a book. Um, but we're going to take these next four weeks to highlight four characteristics or traits of God, sort of like what he is like. And something that we've started recently, um, if you find the Access Church app on your phone, um, you can click and you'll see the series logo um, there on the phone. If you click it, um, it's got the scripture references, fill in the blank opportunities um, through my manuscript and notes, and down at the bottom, there's even previous weeks. So for those who like to follow along in that way, you can. If you're a pen and paper guy like I am, um, you're welcome to continue journaling your way through. Just wanted to let you know about that. Um, Our good friend Kirsten is, is helping us Uh, become more savvy in these ways, and so thankful for her work. Um, Over the next four Sundays, we're going to be diving into the greatness, the glory, the goodness, and the grace of God. God is great, God is glorious, God is good, and God is gracious. Therefore, we should live according to these things being true And we should feel differently about our lives and our circumstances because these are true. So the greatness of God, why does this matter? Well, here's a practical takeaway that I'd like to build out for us this morning. God is great, therefore I don't have to be in control. I don't have to be in control because God is great. This should be liberating. You don't have to be in control because God is great. And honestly, a lot of sin and unnecessary burdens in our lives can be traced back, drawn back to an unbelief or a disbelief in the truth that God is great. There's also a lot of hassle and struggle that we unnecessarily invite into our lives when we don't anchor our lives and our circumstances upon this truth. In Genesis chapter 1, your Bible begins like this. And speaking of light, let's bring the house lights up just a touch so I can see our folks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was present, hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And he continues to do this spiritually. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, there was morning, the first day. And then God continued creating This world, our universe, for a total of six days, resting on the seventh. Psalm 89 and verse 11 says, The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, speaking of God's. 
the world and all that is in it. You have founded them. The north and the south, those were your ideas. You created them. When God created the universe, he did so with certain truths already in place. And Psalm 89, 14 tells us righteousness and justice, things that are true and right, are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. The entire universe, as vast and as large as it is, is being held together by a significant and massive set of truths that if violated or altered or changed in any way would absolutely cause catastrophic disaster. For example, if the earth were closer to or farther from the sun, we'd all die. If the moon was closer to the earth, the waters and oceans would flood the lands. I mean, think about how many truths exist just to hold our universe together. They seem limitless, endless. Our very own Dr. Steve Robinson, a physicist at Belmont, gave me this analogy this week as I was fact-checking some of my research. He said this. This blew my mind. If a star was represented by a grain of sand, then a railroad car full of sand would be about how many stars are in our galaxy. And if you extrapolate, that's a word we use all the time, I know. If you extrapolate that to the number of stars in the universe, you'd have to wait about 50,000 years at a railroad crossing for all the grains of sand or stars to pass by. Now look at your fingertip real quick, the pinky. Look at the tip of your fingertip there. Still, there are about the same number of atoms in the end of your pinky finger as the stars in the universe. That's staggering. That's like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Creation is astounding. The size, the magnitude, the complexity of the universe, it really is beyond our comprehension. Now, I want you to imagine with me, all right? I, I've got this piece of paper, and probably only those who are pretty close can see this, but these aren't pinholes. I wish they were pinholes, like a thumbtack hole, but I used a Sharpie because a pinhole's too small to even see from the front row. So let's say that this paper is limitless. It just continues to go from here all the way out the door, out of the building, down the street, and continues until you can't see it anymore. Now, this first pinhole, this first dot is the earth, okay? That tiny speck, those who can see it, this is our cities, our mountains, our land masses, our oceans. In that little speck there, is Mount Everest, Budapest, New Delhi, Australia, the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, like everything on our earth is this tiny little dot right there. Five-eighths of an inch from that is our moon, okay? Now, 19 feet away from here, you will see, and I believe on the fourth row, there's in the seat back pocket right here. One, two, three... Right, right there. Do you see a piece of paper with a... I, whoa, wow, somebody edited it for me. That's cool. All right, hold that up for us. All right, all right. That, you'd have to go from, from the middle of this podium to that young lady there, 19 feet. That is our sun. All right, so here, earth, moon, sun. All right. Now, you would have to go six... Thank you. You'd have to go 600 feet away before you come to Neptune. If you go down Van Buren, that's roughly where Butcher Town Hall is. 
continuing on our roll of paper, leaving our solar system and our tiny little pinhole planets, we'd have to travel a thousand miles of paper to reach the nearest star. That's roughly from this podium to Bismarck, North Dakota, or from this podium to Cancun or Denver or Augusta, Maine. Space is so massive that distances are measured by the distance light travels in a year. Light travels at 186,000, not miles per hour. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. That's so fast that if a bullet were shot at that speed, and if it could circle the earth, it would circle the earth seven complete times in a single second. At the speed of light, you could travel from LA to New York 60 times in a second. You could reach the moon five-eighths of an inch from the earth, two seconds. You'd get from here to the sun in eight minutes. But even at that speed, it would take you 4.3 years before you reach the nearest star. And get this, just across one galaxy, like our own Milky Way galaxy, at that speed, it would still take you 120,000 years to cross it. Currently, astronomers estimate that there are more than 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe. That's all that we can see. It could be infinite, 2 trillion Milky Way-type galaxies. Our own physicist, Dr. Tim Ferriss, I love what he said here, whoever came up with the idea to call it space, nailed it. It's huge. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11 says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. They'll, you'll roll them up like a garment. They'll be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Who God is and what God has made is staggering. Why did God make the universe so expansive? Because he's great and greatly to be praised. He's to receive glory and honor for all that he's done. And that feeling of like, wow, whoa, that maybe you felt as we kind of were talking about some of the expanse of the universe, that's a form of worship. That's a, that's a form of when you see something great, you realize how small you are. It's like, wow. It's like if you stand at the edge, the rim of the Grand Canyon, looking out, if you've been there before, you're just like, and it's just a hole, you know, but it's still kind of like it's a big hole. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. Not only has God made the universe, but he's also made the truth, the math, the science that holds it all together. I mean, the stuff that's required to maintain such an incredible quantity of matter might even be more staggering than the matter itself. I mean, because God is the ultimate scientist, engineer, astronomer, like all in one. And his greatness is on display in the entire universe. Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And the, his greatness is unsearchable. Literally, the depth of God's greatness is measureless. It truly is. God is great. Most of us perhaps know in our minds that God is great. Though if you're like me, many of us struggle believing it with our lives and our whole hearts. 
You see, God has at all times perfect wisdom and knowledge. He's got at all times perfect control and poise, power, peace, and presence. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. And as we work through this, let's work through those three real quick. God is omnipresent. He's always present. God is always here, close to everything, next to everyone. This means that he's unlimited in respect to space. God is not just nearby. God is, in fact, everywhere. He fills heaven and earth, and no one can hide from him. There's no secret places where he's excluded. Psalm 139 and verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in shale, you're there. In fact, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand will hold me. Omnipresent. He's also omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-knowing. God fully knows himself and all things, actual and possible at all times. Pastor and author A.W. Tozer wrote this. God, and this made me giggle as I read it and came across this quote. God knows every possible item of knowledge concerning everything that exists or could have existed. Like even probable things. Like anywhere in the universe at any time in the past or that may exist in the centuries or in ages yet unborn. In other words, God is infinite and limitless in regards to knowledge. God knows all things immediately, simultaneously, exhaustively, and truly. And since God knows all things perfectly, he knows nothing better than any other thing. He doesn't have expertise in a certain field compared to other fields. He doesn't have a niche. He doesn't have a wheelhouse. He knows all things fully at the same time. And if God has perfect knowledge, he has no need to learn. God has never been surprised. He's never been amazed. God has never said, um, say what? He's never said, hmm. He's never said, uh-oh. And he's never thought, well, that's interesting. Such perfect knowledge implies that God has never learned. God cannot learn. Therefore, God doesn't need to reason toward his conclusions or ponder carefully over his answers. His immediate inclination is the perfect way to do it. Proverbs 5.21 tells us that each person's attitudes, behavior, and choices are in full view of God. This means that no thought, action, desire, or motive can be hidden from him. He knows all things. Consider Psalm 139 in verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my way of going about life, my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. You know what? Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. And lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I admire and, and I desire the humility and self-awareness that he has here. That last sentence. We need more of this in our lives. 
such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. Let's ask for that humility. According to Matthew chapter 10 and verse 29, God knows even the tiniest details about everything, about every person. Continuing in Psalm 139 and 15, it speaks to this so well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. According to Luke 12, 7 and Matthew 10, 30, God knows exactly how many hairs are currently on your head or hair follicles for me. God also knows the future and he doesn't have to wait for the future to become present for him to know it. He's not limited to time and space as we are. Finally, he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. Omnipotence implies the possession of all power, unlimited power in regards to its extent and its magnitude. This means that God can do anything he pleases. And, and Job 42 speaks to this. This means also that he's never exhausted. He never gets tired. Matthew 19, 26 tells us that the things that are impossible for us, oh, they're possible for him. Jeremiah chapter 32, 17 tells us there's nothing too hard for him. So to take that thought further, Anything can be done as easily as anything else. And all his acts are done effortlessly. Like blowing a pile of sawdust off a table is just as easy for him as to instantly create a mature 70-foot oak tree. Does it all the same. To toss a tiny little pebble for God is the same as lifting 550 pounds. Effortlessly. It's no big deal. But now here's my problem, and maybe this is yours. Maybe this resonates. I can know all this. I can be wowed by this as I study it, as we talk about it. But practically, I believe I'm in control. I know what's best. And in fact, my way and timing is best. And I get frustrated when people don't believe me. You see, repentance, remember, it's turning to Jesus to find what I thought could be found elsewhere. To put it another way, for sake of where we are today, repentance is turning to Jesus for my identity and satisfaction, turning to Jesus from other things I thought could satisfy me. You see, when I attach my heart to other things that can't satisfy, like when I have idols of my heart, when I attach my heart to things that can't satisfy, rather than finding my identity in my great God, I essentially say, I know better. And I'm, I'm better off leading me than you are. I essentially say, I can control my life better than you can. I know what's best for me. Let me have it my way. I trust myself. You see, we may grasp certain theological truths, like intellectually. However, our problems often come from a disconnect between what we know to be true and what we set our hearts on like being true. 
Like how you behave, how you react, how you respond, especially in like tense, high stress, high pressure situations often reveal what you actually believe to be true about something. We don't need to merely know the truth with our minds. We need for that truth to change our hearts, change the way that we feel, and inform the way that we live. That's where freedom comes from. An illustration is the way that I consider spills, okay? I try to control messes, not all the time, but nearly all the time with almost everything. And I've gotten a little bit better than I used to be because I've seen the damage that I've caused. For instance, even this week, my wife and I were at the gym and we had this medicine ball near the bench that we were working at and she had her you know, big Axis Stanley thing and it was not full of water. Um, it was full of like a flavor packet that was red. And you know red is like the bully color. It just wants everything else to be red. The other colors kind of wash out. If it's red, it's really tough. So as we're working out, the medicine ball kind of just knocks over. We didn't even see it. We continue working out and it becomes this puddle probably, I don't know, three feet by two feet on the gym floor. And someone comes over and, like, picks it up for us. Like, here, you know, you spilt this. And we're like, oh, my gosh. Like, a spill. You know, it's like, you know, here comes Jeremy, you know. And I look in the middle of the spill is her phone, like, upside down. And so I quickly grab my hoodie. I'm like, you know, grab the phone. I'm like, here, babe. And she takes my hoodie. I thought she was going to wipe off her phone. Just drops it on the big spill, <laughs> you know. And so I'm like, well, I mean, it makes sense, you know. But... <clears throat> I was like, I didn't really know what to do, you know, because I like, I want to save my hoodie because the red color bully, right? And it's like, but I also want to control the mess. I want to make sure the phone's there. I don't know if I should rebuke my wife, like, or like how to handle this moment. I don't know if I go get a mop. I don't, I don't know. I'm just kind of like, I need to do five things at once. You see how limited we are just by the way, even in that God never has to choose. He can do them all at the same time. So I run down the hall and I grab like to the janitor closet, which I frequently go there to clean the shower before I shower because I don't think they keep it clean enough. Uh, they could do better. Um, so I grab, the, I grab the mop. I come running out. I'm like starting to mop and I'm like, I'm, st I'm still carrying my, my hoodie because I don't know what to do with my hoodie. So I just drop it back on the ground. I, I could have done that to begin with. And so I, I clean it up, get her phone ready. And then I'm like, I'm going to go wash this out in the bathroom. So I go to the sink. I got my red colored hoodie at this point, And I turn on the faucet like wide open and it just splashes this all over me in my, my light gray shorts, which is amazing to have happen. And then, so you, I come out of the bathroom as if I just peed all over myself. And I'm like, <clears throat> I've been wringing this out, trying to get the red stuff out. Anyway, I did a decent job compared to how I would have acted years ago. The Lord's working on me. I didn't rebuke my wife. It wasn't, like, it wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't want to add to her shame, as I would have earlier when I was a younger husband, younger daddy. I'm slowly learning, very, very slowly learning. See, when our kids were younger, I would often give them small portions of water and small cups because I wanted to prevent spills, and I knew that I couldn't prevent them all, so I decided let's limit the mess 
to as minimum as possible. I mean, y'all, I pull, even now, I pull like, oh, an open bottle of ranch. I'll pull it and set it in the middle of the counter. Oh, a bottle at the edge of the table. I'll move it to the center because I just, I'm, I'm trying to like stop the mess, right? So that we don't have a lot to clean up. And I struggled. I'm trying to do better. Jill's really helping me. But I struggle in letting my kids be kids because my time is too important to have to stop and clean up a mess. I don't have time to be slowed down by an inconvenience like that. I would rather get the kids 24 refills of small amounts of water than give them a large portion of water. And here's where it gets even more embarrassing. When there were spills, this is kind of sick, but being honest, I wanted them to feel the weight of their mistake. And instead of me cleaning it up with them, I wanted them to clean it up, to learn a lesson as they know it's their fault. I wanted them to be shamed into better behavior. That is not the gospel. The gospel says we have spilled and made an utter mess of everything. And Jesus steps into our time and space not to clean it up with us. He's like, you just go rest with my dad. I'll clean up all this for you with joy. You see the difference? And if I did help, I would do so with a lot of anger, passive aggressively teaching them that my way is best. This is why I said don't keep the cups at the edge of the table. It's soul crushing, y'all, even damning to my spirit if I ever spill something because of the culture that I created. That's the worst. If, if you spill something, I feel self-righteous. Told you that would happen. If I spill something, I hate myself because I'm in control. And I believe that when I'm in control, things are best, which is a lie. And you know what? Even if God wanted to teach our family something through a spill, like, like how to share the burden of cleaning up a mess together, and it's not a big deal, right? I would always do my best to never allow God to teach us through spills because I wanted to prevent spills. Teach us that lesson some other way, not through spills. Practically in situations like this, I believe that if I worked hard enough that I could live life with no spills. Now be reminded, we're talking about water. We're not talking about Sprite with sugar that would draw ants. It's just water. Cleaning it up helps the home be cleaner, right? It's like, we're talking about water. You see, functionally, practically, I believe that Jeremy is Lord. Lord overall. And that his way is best. But the Bible tells us that Jesus is Lord of all. And he runs life best. You see, the reality is the greatness of God should change the way that I live my life, even practically about something like spills. The idol of my heart that makes it difficult to trust and believe that God is great is I need to be in control. It's an idol of my heart. You see, when we trust in our ability to control things rather than trust in God's greatness and his ability to control our lives best, you know what happens? We become overbearing, we become control freaks, we, we become inflexible, and we create a culture of shame, of fear, like uh, we're being afraid of risk, afraid of trying something new. We become impatient with each other, or we'll avoid responsibility so we won't have to worry about making a mistake. 
We become proud and entitled. We think our way is best and we freak out when our plans fail or they don't work out exactly as they're supposed to. Extremely frustrated. And what this does is it creates division and barriers with our friends and family. And they feel it. It adds weight and fear to their shoulders. Our desire to control things creates a culture of burden around everyone that we love. Now, here's some evidences or fruit that maybe show us that we're not trusting and resting in the greatness of God. That should be liberating for us. But here's some truths, some, kind of some things you can point to if control's a thing, an idol of your heart. Is uh, you get angry pretty quick. And you get like pretty cruel with how you handle a situation. You say some pretty rough things. Frustration. You just live with this, this kind of low-grade fever of frustration. Maybe you uh, try to manipulate a situation, manipulate people. Maybe you live with fear. I, I know I've talked to several people over my life that, that fear flying on a plane because I just don't like being in control. As if you're in control of the thousands of cars that are around you going 75 miles an hour, right? Doesn't, God's great, but he's not great enough to protect me as I fly on this airplane. Or anxiety. I'm not talking about the, the, the disorder. I'm talking about just that, that continual worrying and worrying and meditating on the what ifs. You know how to meditate if you know how to worry. It's the same muscle. The what ifs. Or maybe there's impatience around you. You're frustrated with timing. When will my kids get it? When will they obey? When am I going to make more money? When am I going to be noticed? When am I going to find that spouse? I want things to happen right now. God teach me patience, but not in this area of my life. You see, when something we hope for doesn't work out when we want it to, if our faith is in God, in him being great and in control, we rest in him being over all things. We, we have a culture of peace, believing that he sees things that we can't. For instance, the internet was down this morning in the building. Oh, well, this is the way God wants it to be. How cool is that? It's liberating when you realize that he's in control of things like that. He's doing, I don't know, 10,000 things or more to the internet being down in Germantown this morning. Isn't it awesome? We wouldn't plan it that way, but he knows a lot better than us. So you thought, you know what? This is exactly what we need to have happen this morning. Remember Romans 8, 28, God works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called to him. Friends, truly believing and resting in this truth that God is great, it actually allows our lives to rest and have peace and we have more fun with life. If, if God is great and Jesus is Lord of all and he truly runs life best, then you can rest. You can be freed from over-controlling things, manipulating others and trying to control situations. Seeking to be the one who's in control of your life and surroundings all the times, that is not submitting your soul and life to the sufficiency and leadership of God. Remember, he's your shepherd he leads you. You're a sheep. We don't know. That's why he's given us a good shepherd to guide us and lead us to green pastures. We want to go over there. He's like, that's a wilderness. Why would you want to do that? Because I know what's best. I want to go over there. 
and he pulls us, and we moan and cry about it. He pulls us to a green, a green pasture. Wow. Remember the greatness of God. God created the universe. He keeps it running. The seasons, the seasons always change. Did you know the sun came up this morning? And it was, you didn't do that. You're not powerful enough to do that. You're not powerful enough to stop it from happening. Did you know that? <laughs> but we think we do sometimes. We think our level of control is at, at that capacity. But he's the one who does this. There's droughts, but rain eventually falls. Land produces what we need to live. God has provided. He's providing right now, and he will continue to provide. Look at the story of redemption. God moved and worked into human history, making good on his promise of sending us a Messiah, Jesus. And look at Jesus himself demonstrating power and control over all things, over the, the winds, the water. Not only this, but he, he healed the sick and the lame. He opened the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf. He proved his power over death with his friend Lazarus, bringing him up from the grave and himself up from the grave. Such control, such power, such greatness. Look at what God did through his son Jesus for you. It's obvious that he can be trusted. It is such great news that he's great if he loves us. If he doesn't love us, this greatness is terrifying. And so hold the greatness of God with the love of God. And that's a comfort. How do I know he's loving? Because of what he's done for us in sending his only son to live perfectly for us, to die for us, and to beat death for us. We know that God loves us and is good because of who Jesus is, who he was, and who he will be. We know that God loves us and is good because of what Jesus did and what he's doing right now and what he will do. And if you don't trust that God's in control, you know what else? You're going to assume the worst in other people. You'll become very critical, skeptical. You'll try to control your circumstances, manipulate others, and you'll become more and more anxious and worried every single day. It accumulates like a snowball rolling down a hill of snow. The tension, the frustration, it only builds. The longer we take to submit to his lordship, his care, his control, the more and more and more of a burden that we live with every single day. The truth of the matter is, if you're in control, I would encourage you to be very anxious because you're not good at it. You're not perfect and you're not sovereign. You can't change much. You have very little control and power over things. If you're worn out with busyness, if you're worn out with stress and worrying, it could be attached to the, to the lack of faith and belief that God is in control over everything. You know, I don't need to, to work harder at being less controlling at the dinner table. I mean, that, that's part of it. But there's a deeper thing I need to work on. I need to work harder at believing that God is in control. And I can trust him to use everything, even spills, to teach me and guide me. And a fruit of that growing belief is I'm less controlling at the table. Don't just go for the outward fruit behavior. Go to the root issue of why this fruit is the way that it is. You see, these are opportunities like spills that can teach us, grow us, and give us opportunity to serve and not shame or condemn. Psalm 95 and verse 1 says, Oh, come, 
Let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains also are his. The sea is his. He made it. It belongs to him. And his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. You're not. I'm not. We are just the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, as you heard earlier in our confession, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's often not in knowing more that will lead you to believe that God is great, but believing more of what you already know. Friend, God is great, greater than anything ever. And we don't have to worry and be anxious because God is aware and in control. And what we see is a very crooked, wandering, dangerous path in a wilderness. God sees as a straight, cleared path through a pleasant meadow with flowing streams of water. And one day, I believe this is true, we're going to look back at our own journeys, our own stories, and we'll see them as a clear path through a meadow. And we'll see that the times when we thought he was most absent, he was even carrying us through those times. And you know what we'll say? He truly has done all things well. I'll close with Psalm 18. I'm going to start in verse 7, and then I'm going to spend some time in Psalm 18, reading the first portion and then the last portion. So I'm going to read the middle portion of Psalm 18 first. And what you're about to hear is terrifying, if this is all that we know of who God is. But hold on for the rest of the story. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode an angel, a cherub, and he flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, a canopy around him with thick clouds with water. Clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through the clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Terrifying. At his greatness. Consider the first part of this chapter and then the last. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I'm safe from my enemies. I mean, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my trouble and distress, I called upon the Lord. To, to my God, I cried out for help from his temple. He heard my voice. And my cry to him reached his ears. Verse 16, he sent from on high. He took me, terrifying, 
He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. They were just too mighty for me. I couldn't do it. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He delights in you only because of what Jesus Christ has done. The only thing you did was put yourself in a situation that you need to be rescued and you had no hope. That's what your good things do for you. The good things that Jesus does for us rescues us and causes God to delight in us because of Jesus Christ representing us and working on our behalf. I mean, such greatness and power, right? But then also such grace and love. Do you know and fear his greatness? I hope so. But do you also know and admire his love, his tenderness, and his mercy? We know his love through the work of his son, and that's what we focus on and remind ourselves of as we come to the Lord's table this morning. We see the greatness of God as he gives us Jesus. Jesus takes on our sin. Jesus shoulders and owns all of God's wrath for us. And Jesus dies our death in our place and he rises to victory and offers us forgiveness. The gospel story itself tells us that God is great. And so as we take communion together, remind yourself of the greatness of God. Tell your hearts, you're really not that good at being in control. But God sure is. Tell yourself that as you share communion this morning. As we consider how great of a salvation is ours in Christ, allow your heart to worship your great God this morning. We're going to have servers on either side of the stage and self-serve stations in the back. You're going to grab bread, which is symbolic of the perfect life that Jesus Christ lived in your place as your representative. He represented you in his life perfectly. You're going to take that and dip it into the juice or the wine, the red liquid symbolic of the blood that he shed as he died on the cross as your substitute, absorbing the wrath of God in your place. So as you come and you take and you dip and you taste, remind yourself of the truth of the gospel and the greatness of our God. Don't drift through this time. And remember, this is just for Christians, those who believe Jesus Christ. Let's remember the greatness of God, specifically in what he did through Jesus. Let's pray. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the Christian faith, that Christ has come, Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he will come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of worshiping, of remembering, this time of communion, and triune God. Remain with us always, even through the end of the age. Amen. Christian, when you're ready, please come and take, remembering the greatness of God through the work of Jesus Christ, his son. You can come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.